You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm Kenny Ortiz. This is Theology for the Rest of Us, coming at you from the beautiful metropolis of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for being a part of the incredible, loyal fan base for this podcast. So, so glad to have you. This is episode 252, and I'm going to continue the mini-series that I've been in. Uh, It's going to become really not a mini-series. It's going to be a pretty long series, actually. I've got several more episodes lined up and and some interviews, so excited to do that. Um, In this episode, I'm going to continue, and I'm going to answer the question... Uh, how many different ways are there to interpret Genesis? And this will sort of be multi-parts. This this exact topic I'll I'll do a few episodes on. So this will sort of be sort of be part one of just this specific question. Um, how many different ways are there to interpret Genesis, or what are the different ways to interpret interpret uh, Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter one? And, and people sometimes ask, well, are there different ways to interpret Genesis? And the answer is yes, there are different ways to interpret Genesis chapter 1. And I covered this uh, to some extent or to a large extent in episodes 247 and in episodes 248. I encourage you to go back and check those out whenever you get a chance. Um, I covered some of the views related to Genesis, but in that in, the, in those particular episodes, I was dealing more with the age of the Earth um, and the age of the universe. How old is everything? Uh, I didn't necessarily deal with the types of ways to view or interpret Genesis chapter one. I didn't deal with the the hermeneutics, so to speak. I didn't come at it from a a, a biblical interpretation. A or a theological perspective. It came at it more from a, a little more from a philosophical and scientific perspective, and so I was answering the question "age of the earth." I was not answering the question "how to interpret Genesis one." Of course, it's impossible to answer the question "how old is the universe" or "how old is the earth" without diving into some of the hermeneutics of Genesis one. You know, how to interpret Genesis one? But I want to kind of spend some time focusing more on specifically the ways to interpret Genesis 1. Um, Historically, there have been different ways to interpret Genesis 1. There was not a uniform opinion. I know that there are some Christians today that would like you to believe that, you know, everyone believed the exact same thing for, for, you know, centuries after centuries, and then all of a sudden in the 1800s, you know, Darwin came on the scene and there was a new way of viewing the origin of species from a scientific perspective, and all of a sudden that caused people to to abandon ship on the you know the 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 only orthodox way to interpret the scripture. You know that people were looking at the science and going, okay, I guess we have to change the way we view scripture because of this new science. That's the narrative that some Christians today are sort of, uh, or not just sort of, but they are that they are. That's what they're you know asserting. And quite frankly, that's just not true. Um, I, I will concede that for the vast majority of biblical history, as long as the Bible has been around, most people probably have taken a more literal or more 
plain reading of the text. That probably has been the case most of the time for a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that all people took that approach. It wasn't perfectly uniform. And I mentioned this, you know, I talked about this back in episode 247. Um, Throughout history, there have been variances of opinions. Um, Some of the prominent ones that we know about are Origen, who was a famous Christian writer and apologist writing in the uh, living in, and writing in the second and third centuries. Origen believed that Genesis 1 should be interpreted metaphoric. Uh, in fact, he, he looked at lots of elements of the scripture in more in an allegorical way. I'm not saying that I agree with him. I'm just saying, you know, his opinion was different. And people that followed Origen and, and were influenced by him would have had uh, an opinion that is different and wasn't uniform, so to speak. Uh, in the fourth century, the early church father Augustine, who was you know, greatly influential, um, had a different opinion of Genesis chapter one. He did not believe that God created the earth over the six, a six-day period. In fact, Augustine believed that God created everything all at one time; that it was sort of one big action, and that and that Genesis chapter one was written with day one, day two, day three, just sort of as a manner to help people understand what God did. The point wasn't necessarily to to say exactly what God did, and it wasn't necessarily even in chronological order. The point was that God did it, and that God deserves the glory, that God is preeminent over nature and things of nature, that individual elements of nature aren't God, and they should not be worshipped, as they were in many you know parts of the world in antiquity. Um, Augustine is sort of looking at Genesis 1, and this is during the fourth century, you know, Augustine is looking at Genesis chapter one. He's saying, okay, this was written back, you know, uh, you know, 1400 BC. And God basically inspired Moses to write Genesis one in a way that made sense for the audience that Moses was directly writing to the, the, the Israelite people that God was, was speaking to the people that Moses was leading, um, you know, so Augustine sort of gave credence to the idea that, you know, that, that there's not necessarily a plain face value understanding of Genesis 1, or at least, you know, the, the, the most literal way to read it isn't necessarily what Genesis 1 is saying. And Augustine is not doing that based on science. Augustine is looking at the text. He's looking at Genesis chapter 1. He's looking at the style of writing. He's using hermeneutics. He's interpreting Genesis chapter 1, and he's coming to the realization that the style of writing in Genesis chapter 1 is unique and therefore should be should be interpreted maybe not in a, in a, in the in the direct literal manner that some other Christians would lead you to believe it ought to be interpreted. Um, again, so Augustine is writing this. There are other Christians in that time period that would have agreed with Augustine. Fast forward to the 13th century. The famous Catholic theologian and philosopher that many of us have great respect for, Thomas Aquinas. Um, he wrote some very similar things to, that, that Augustine wrote. Um, and, and Thomas Aquinas seems to be giving us an understanding that, that, that it's not necessarily a narrative of what God did. That Genesis chapter one isn't necessarily, okay, God did this and then he did this and then he did this. That it's not a narrative. It's not a sequence of events, but instead it's more just painting the picture of how powerful God is and reminding people that God transcends 
the the natural order of things that God transcends creation because he created creation and that we shouldn't take you know the the strictest most literal view of Genesis chapter 1 there are many scholars that don't take that super literal view of Genesis chapter 1 and and it's not necessarily based on modern science now, now there are probably some people that embrace you know different theories and ideologies and maybe you know a form of some form of theistic evolution and and, and it's based upon modern science you know, there are some Christians that probably say okay science says we evolved so we got to figure out a way to make the Bible fit the scientific narrative there are probably some Christians doing that and I would say that is a flawed and erroneous way to approach Genesis chapter 1. But there are many scholars that are not allowing modern science to influence how they interpret Genesis chapter 1, but they're actually looking at the text itself, and they're reading the Hebrew, they're reading the literature, they're looking at the structure, and they're coming to the realization, based on the evidence in the text itself, that the style of writing in Genesis 1 gives us some indication that Moses never intended us to take it uber literally. Um, th there are things in the text. When you read Genesis chapter 1, when you look at the style of Hebrew writing, when you look at some of the figures of speech that are in there, when you look at the cadence, and the way it's written, it, there are elements in Genesis 1 that would lead us to believe that we should not take an uber literal or super strict, uh, you know, face value view of Genesis one in the way it makes sense to us today in the 21st century. But instead we ought to consider how would this have been viewed by the Israelites coming out of Egypt and wandering around the wilderness before going into the promised land. What were they like? And why would Moses write it the way he wrote it? And, and how would they have understood the words that Moses was writing? If you examine the text, you come to the realization that Genesis chapter 1 is written very differently than the rest of the book of Genesis. The rest of the book of Genesis should be taken as a historical narrative with the sequence of events being accurate historical events. But Genesis chapter 1 is written in a very different style. And, and again, the text demands that we interpret it differently. I, I did an interview oh, probably 10, 11 months ago with a guy by the name of Tyler Vela, and I never had a chance to actually publish the, the, the interview. I'm going to publish it in a few episodes, and Tyler's going to give you lots of information about the text itself, and he's going to talk quite a bit about everything I just said. I'm looking forward to that. So look for that in the feed. It's going to be a great, great interview that's going to give you lots of lots of insights into what I'm saying here. Let me kind of close this episode by, by saying this. There are two primary overarching ways of approaching Genesis chapter 1 um, and really approaching any sort of literature in the Old Testament that is comparable to the style of writing in Genesis 1. There are two primary ways. There's the concordus view, and then there's the non-concordus view. The concordus view is the idea that Genesis 1 is written in a in a, a fashion to give us the sequence of events. That Genesis 1 is telling us 
God did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and that the reason why Moses wrote Genesis 1 was to give us an understanding of exactly how God created the world and in what order he did everything. That's the concordous view. And I think that's the view that most Christians in America today take, but that's not necessarily been the prominent view throughout church history. There is another view that's the non-concordist view, and that is the idea that God never intended us to read Genesis 1 as a narrative, as a history of what God did, how he did it, and when he did it. That Genesis chapter 1 is not designed to be the order in which God did things. But instead, Genesis chapter 1 is written in, in a format that uses a very unique style of Hebrew writing, not to show what God did, but to show that God did it. Like if you're an Israelite person living in Exodus, or excuse me, excuse me, living in Egypt before the Exodus, you know you've been in Egypt for for several centuries. You you you, you have no theological roots to your ancestors. You know Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Uh, the, the, you know the, the forming of the nation of Israel, Jacob and his his children. You have very little connection to that, other than just some stories. You've lived in Egypt, a a pagan nation, all your life, and now all of a sudden Moses shows up on the scene, reminds you of the God of your forefathers, leads you into the wilderness through this r- remarkable you know sequence of events, and now God is using Moses to speak to the people, to to let them know who God is. In Egypt, many of the people would have worshipped you know, nature. They would have worshipped the sun. Well, Genesis chapter 1, Moses is writing it to tell them, hey, listen, don't worship the sun. The sun is nothing more than a, a, a created thing created by the one true God, the God of your forefathers, Yahweh. Like he, Moses is depersonalizing these things that they otherwise would have seen as sacred or divine. They would have viewed these elements of nature as deity or worthy of worship in some manner. But Moses is writing Genesis 1 not to give them the sequence of events of what God did, but instead to show them God's power and preeminence over all of the created things. Now, the Concordist view, there are, uh, there are you know old earth and young earth people within the Concordist view. There are people who take the literal concordance view, literal six-day creation, young earth, and they would say Genesis 1 is telling us a sequence of events. On day one, God did this. Day two, he did this. Day three, day four, day five, so on, so on. It was literal. We have a young earth. The earth is only six or 7,000 years old. And you've got guys like Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and ICR. Um, you know, you, you've got a variety of different people that are sort of in that camp. And if you're in that camp, I have no problem with it. I have no problem with Christians being in that camp. Uh, but I think it's important to note that is just one form of the concordist approach to, a, to, to interpreting Genesis chapter 1. Then you have people who take a more metaphoric or hybrid approach. They think maybe there are portions of Genesis 1 that should be taking, you know, in the strictest literal way. But portions should be taking more metaphoric. So you've got people that would say, you know, the gap theory, as I talked about back in episodes 247 and 248, or the historic creationist view, or the, or the day-age view, that each day of Genesis is metaphoric for a much longer period of time. So you can be an old earther and believe the, the earth is millions and millions of years old, 
and that Genesis 1 is very metaphoric, or that one day doesn't mean a literal day or solar day, but it means, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or maybe even millions of years. You believe a day in Genesis 1 is an age. But even if you believe that, it's still a concordist view because you're saying that God is teaching us what he did and that he did it over the course of a long period of time. So even the young earther and the old earther have something in common here. They both take the concordance view. They both say that Genesis chapter 1 is the sequence of events. That's the order of what God did, how he did it, and when he did it. That, that's the concordance view. And again, you have old earthers in that camp and you have young earthers in that camp. But the non-concordist view is, is a completely different way of looking at it. This is sort of what Augustine was talking about way back in the 4th century. That Genesis 1 is not a roadmap as to how God did it. This is not the ingredients of what God did and the order in which he put the ingredients in. That's not what Genesis 1 is saying. At least it's what Augustine would, was asserting and many other scholars. Augustine is asserting that God did it, and then he uses this, this unique style of writing in Genesis 1 to sort of explain that he is the creator, that he is preeminent over all the other things that humans might be tempted to worship or view as divine. God is preeminent and supreme over everything, and he is the only, he is the only being worthy of worship. That's the point of Genesis chapter one. And again, Tyler's going to come on in a few episodes and he's going to, he's going to, in that interview that I did with Tyler a while back, um, he's going to talk extensively about what he call or what is frequently known as the framework hypothesis. And he's going to talk about how Genesis one was written as, as a, as a polemic writing, um, indicting all the false gods of Egypt and of the pagan nations around the wilderness. And again, lifting up Yahweh as the supreme God. There's the concordist view. That's the idea that Genesis 1 is telling us what God did and what order he did it in. Some concordists take the most literal view of Genesis 1. Some take a metaphoric view or a hybrid of somewhat literal and somewhat metaphoric. But in essence, they're in the same camp. Whether you're young earth or old earth, you still fall in the concordist camp if you're approaching Genesis 1 as the as the roadmap for how we should view how God created everything. Genesis 1 has a different way of being interpreted, though, a different hermeneutic, and that is the non-concordist. And that is the idea that we should not look at Genesis 1 as a roadmap for how God did, did things. In fact, when you ask many non-concordist scholars, well, how did God create things? They'll say, we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. We should, we should instead look to reliable pieces of science to teach us that because Genesis 1 is not designed to teach us those things. Genesis 1 is designed to teach us about the power and sovereignty and preeminence of our God, who is indeed the creator. Now, there may be non-concordists out there that still are young earth, right? There are some, there are some non-concordists that are old earth and some would be non and young earth. Right, being a concordist or non-concordist doesn't mean you're young Earth or, or, or old Earth. There are young Earthers in the concordist camp, and probably going to be young Earthers in the non-concordist camp. There's going to be young Earth or old Earthers in the concordist camp, and old Earthers in the non-con, you know, uh, concordist camp. There's going to be young Earthers and young and, and old Earthers 
in both camps. The point is not how old you think the earth is. In this particular argument, when it comes to how do you interpret Genesis chapter 1, you're dealing specifically with do you believe Genesis 1 is the narrative of how God created things or is Genesis 1 a thesis for the fact that God is preeminent over all of creation? Th those are two different approaches. I think there are faithful Christians on either side of the argument. I think there are great believers and scholars on either side. I just think it's important to make sure you understand the differences in the two perspectives. And I believe it's important that Christians be kind and charitable to one another because there are faithful Christians on both sides of the aisle. This is not an issue that I think we ought to divide over. I don't think this is an issue we start calling people heretics over. This is an issue we can debate, we can argue in a cordial and civil way, we can have disagreements and still worship the Lord and acknowledge his preeminence. As long as everyone is acknowledging that God is the creator and they're not they're not robbing him of his glory or sovereignty, then all of us can worship God regardless of how we approach Genesis chapter 1. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Hope it was helpful and insightful. If you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The best address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Hey, if you're on Twitter, find me there. I love to tweet. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. Hey, don't forget to leave us a rating or review on whatever directory or podcast app you're using. Those are a big, big help to the show. Leave us a five-star rating. Tell the world you love the podcast. Those help us reach more people. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.